Hey everyone, it's Luke. Uh, before we get going with this week's episode of Livewire, I just wanted to let you know that we are in our spring member drive, and uh, I wanted to gently impress upon you just how important it is for us that you support Livewire if this is something that you uh, enjoy week in and week out. It takes a lot to put together an episode of our show. Of course, we recorded on stage in front of a live crowd, so we have got to rent the place where we do the show. We hire contractors uh, to help us with the production each week. We got to wrangle the live crowd. We got to wrangle the guests. Uh, the guests are often flown in from uh, all over the country. Folks like Salman Rushdie, Phoebe Robinson, Baratunde Thurston, just to name a few. Um, and all of that, of course, costs money. But our hope is that we are able to create week in and week out something that really sounds different on public radio. Uh, it sounds, I don't know, maybe a little corny, but uh, within our kind of staff meetings, I always try to talk about Livewire as being the realest show in public radio. I don't know if that's grammatically correct or not, but I want to create a show that really creates actual genuine conversations and genuine moments of surprise and delight. Um, but that stuff doesn't come together uh, by accident. It takes a lot of work for a lot of people. And also, to be honest with you, it takes a lot of money. So we're hoping that you hear that week in and week out on our show. Um, but the thing is, we are an independently produced nonprofit organization. Uh, so what does that mean for us? That means that the only way that we can actually do this is with your support. So if you like Livewire and if you feel like it adds value to your life, um, we would be so appreciative if you could take a moment and sign up as a sustaining member today by donating $10 a month to the show. It's just 10 bucks a month, but all of those 10 bucks add up and it makes it possible for us to do this program. Uh, you can click on the link in this podcast for more information, or you can go over to livewireradio.org for more information about our spring member drive. Again, you can click on this podcast for more information or head over to livewireradio.org. We can only do this with your help. And so thank you so much for keeping Livewire going. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. How is your week going? Hope you're having a good one. Uh, we've got a really interesting and varied show in store for you this week. Uh, we're talking about breakthroughs, and that's because all of our guests have been having professional breakthroughs or making scientific breakthroughs in some way. And, and the whole thing got me thinking about, about personal breakthroughs. Personal breakthroughs for me and for our announcer, Elena Passarello, who I met up with on stage at the Alberta Street Pub in Portland recently. Let's pick things up there. Hello, Elena Passarello. How are you? I'm great. How you doing? I am good. Never been better. Um, have you had any breakthroughs of late that you'd like to uh, sort of report here on Livewire? I've been trying to think about this. I think the for me, a really noteworthy breakthrough that happens again and again and again is that moment when you realize you've been hearing a song lyric wrong for years and years and years, and then you finally hear it right, and you're like, oh, this song makes so much more sense now. <laughs> yes. You know? So when I was a kid, I thought that the Sade song Smooth Operator was Ooh Bopperetta. And she was just like, Ooh Bopperetta. She was just thinking about, thinking about this really sexy woman named Bopperetta. Like, Ooh Bopperetta. You know, like the girl from Ipanema yeah. kind of a thing. Uh, I, <laughs> How old were you when you figured out that wasn't the lyric? Uh, like 39. 
<laughs> no, this one I, I really recently figured out that um, Jimmy Buffett is not. He's singing some people claim that there's a woman to blame and not some people claim that there's a warm under blame. <laughs> I actually thought it was that until you just told me. You're kidding me. Yeah, I did not know the real lyric. Are you, you, there is no one else on the planet who, uh, who thinks that it's a warm I think it blame, was warm. Right? I thought it was warm summer rain. Some people claim that there's, there's a, a warm, warm summer, summer rain. rain. But I know. <laughs> boop, 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 boop. It's a nobody's fault. I mean, I think that yeah. would have also been a way for him to go on the song. It would have worked. At least summer rain is like an actual word. Like underblame is yeah. like. <laughs> like I was like in Florida, they got a warm underblame. So pack a sweater. Like, no, no clue. It's weird how your brain reverse engineers a whole scenario around the yeah. misheard lyric. For the longest time, I thought that that song, So You Think You're a Romeo playing a part in a picture show. I think it's a super tramp song maybe. I thought it was so you think you're a Romeo bang a pot in a picture show. And I imagined I imagined a whole like Monty Python-esque video where there's like a baby for some reason that's banging a pot in a picture show. I had written a movie about the lyric that I was totally misunderstanding. I had a bit of a breakthrough a couple months ago, uh, which involved uh, sort of home dental care. Um, <laughs> like you do, yeah. So you know how you go to the dentist, and if you're getting your teeth cleaned, when when you head home, it just feels great. Your teeth just feel like they're operating on all cylinders. And then you don't get to have that feeling again. Even if you brush your teeth and floss, it doesn't feel that same way until you go back, which is, I think every 10 years, my wife tells me it's... <laughs> More like every six months or year. So I, I, I had sort of a, a, I had a breakthrough. I was like, I wonder if they sell those dental cleaning tools online. <laughs> it turns out they do. They're on Amazon for like $7. And I ordered them. I never know what it looks like because I always have my eyes closed and I'm like lying. Well, there's a sharp, tiny hook, <laughs> which sounds kind of scary when yeah. you say it that way. But uh, it's like for kind of getting in there and cleaning stuff. There's another one that's like a sort of flat-ended guy that you can kind of scrape scrape around. It's less painful than it sounds, and it is amazing. Huh. Like you, I got, I got this stuff in the mail. I opened it up. I went to town, and um, I'm never going back to the real dentist. <laughs> I thought that you needed like a dental license to get this stuff, but you just need an Amazon Prime account. <laughs> Do you, can you buy a drill, do you think? Too? I have not taken it to the level of trying to do actual <laughs> fillings, but I, I'm going to look into it and I will definitely report back yeah. when I find out about that. Keep us posted. Uh, we've actually got uh, somebody waiting in the wings who's had a breakthrough year and we want to get him out here right now. Please welcome Hanif Abdurraqib to Livewire. <laughs> Hanif, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, the book is They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. Is there a reason why you picked that particular... Was it a note? It was written on the memorial for Michael Brown, the uh, unarmed black man shot by police. Yeah. Which had somebody handwritten it? Someone handwrote a note. Someone handwrote on a piece of paper and taped it to the bottom. And and what was it about that that felt like that was the right thing for the, for the title of this book for you? You know, I, I think that in some ways we think a lot about unarmed black youth or the like lineage of, of unarmed black people being killed in America, there's a way in which we have a responsibility to make them immortal, right? Because to not do that leads to a type of forgetting that leads to a, a continued violence, which it could be argued that that violence would exist anyway. But I, I do feel a responsibility to 
immortalized our, our dead in humanizing ways because I often didn't get that from American media, right? And so I began to think about what I wanted to do in this book, which largely I imagined myself kind of making a tapestry of memories that I was extracting and wanting to live longer, you know? And so, yes, it's a physical thing, but it's also kind of in memorial always. You actually just, I mean, in the last week or so, found out that uh, one of the essays from your new book is going to be featured in an anthology. Yeah, um, it's in the Best American series, but it's Best American Non-Required Reading. Yeah, why do they say that? <laughs> well, because it's like picked by a panel of like the Best American judges, but it's also picked by students who are like, I would love if this were taught in schools. I see. So it's the best of things that are not yet assigned reading, right. but should be probably. Yeah, it's pretty weird. They picked the essay about like future. Yeah, the, the rapper. rapper. And but, me crying in an airport. Well, right. You, you wrote on Twitter that you were considering not even including that chapter in your new book. I mean, it's the last essay in the book, I think, or second to last. And it's the last one I put in the book. And in order to fit it in the book, I had to pull another thing that I really liked uh, that was equally sad about, you know, sleeping on an air mattress for several months. So I pulled that essay from the book because maybe it was a little too sad. Um, and the publisher wanted that the essay about future in the book because I was told... By a writer I won't name but admire that that was like the best thing they read. Like they, they had passed this book off to some people to blurb it or whatever. And a writer I love um, was like, well, the book is, is good, but like that essay about future is the one. And I was like, well, I guess I got to keep it in the book now. Um, do you consider that this particular essay to be about the rapper future or about the loss of your mother? Well, ideally in my head it's about the singular thread of like working through – emotional difficulty so in some ways about future about futures pretty unique run through you know the past like six years where he was just releasing album and mixtape and album and mixtape but he was doing it as a way to deflect from the immense pain he was encountering and i found myself doing that when writing this book and so really i think that essay is largely about kind of like self-reflecting on my own desire to produce things to replace you know, if I'm producing work, I'm replacing, like, other things I've lost. I noticed that that happens a lot in your essays. I think it's such a cool function of them, the, these pairings, right? So, like, yeah. Johnny Cash and Migos or uh, a, a personal story and story of future. Yeah. Uh, are you seeking those pairings always when you're writing, or do they just sort of show up and then you start writing? Like, I think I'm always seeking them. I think that, so, so for example, the Johnny Cash-Migos thing, um, I was at a Migos album release party for the first culture album there was like this old dude who had on like a johnny cash leather jacket and i was talking to a friend and i was like isn't it weird how like johnny cash and migos have built the same mythology around themselves because I, I in my brain i'm always kind of looking for odd things that make sense only to me and so the writing of them is trying to unravel the curiosity within myself and you know if other people find it interesting that is a bonus is it the same in poetry or is that your essay mode i think it's the same in poetry I mean, I think the great like thesis I'm always chasing after is, isn't it weird that I am capable of feeling so many things at once, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and how do I distill those things down to a, to a single thing or two? What is the lighthouse? Like, what's the one thing pulling me towards mm -hmm. all these feelings and surely I can find a way in? Uh, we have Hanif Abdur-Rakib here. His new book is uh, They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. Speaking of kind of uh, what might be surprising pairings, the title of the book comes from something that was written on Michael Brown's memorial in yeah. Ferguson. And and you're there one day, and literally the next day, you're in New Jersey right. watching Bruce Springsteen play to a bunch of uh, 
exuberant white people mostly. Yeah. Those yeah. are in the same chapter. How is that connected to your um, mind? Yeah, well, one, I was amazed by the amount of exuberant whites. Um, <laughs> because knowing, I mean, I, I love Bruce Springsteen. I, Bruce Springsteen is my favorite artist of all time. The first artist who taught me what it could look like to be a writer. I mean, I think Bruce Springsteen is one of the great American novelists, right? So I used to work for MTV News. You know, my, my boss was the great critic and a mentor of mine, Jessica Hopper. Uh, and she was like, you can write whatever you want. Because I was like, ah, MTV, I don't know, you know. She's like, no, you can really write whatever you want. Uh, and to test this out, she was like, do you want to go see Springsteen in Jersey for your first assignment ever? And I was like, yes, absolutely. But the day before, I had a reading in St. Louis, a poetry reading. And I, I was in Ferguson for the summer for the, for the uprising, the protests. And I hadn't been back since. And so I thought... I should go. I'm in St. Louis. I should just pop over to Ferguson. Um, and I was really kind of gutted by how hollow the town felt, you know, how hollow the city felt, um, and how there was kind of an air of fear still hovering over. And to go see Bruce Springsteen, who, again, who I love, the night after, it was when he was doing the river tour, where he was like playing through the river, which is an album that is like distinctly about this very distilled version of American freedom that I think is in a lot of Springsteen's work where it's just all this like Eastern Shore, 50s Americana iconography and this like men driving cars through some thunderstorms to nowhere and like dudes outside of windows of, and women in like polka dotted dresses and they're all named Mary or Susan. And in Springsteen's mind, I think there's like a freedom in that. And so to kind of like reckon with what freedom looks like from two very different standpoints. And I think like Springsteen, the human being, knows that that isn't freedom. But I'm fascinated by how he built a career off of this kind of like very Americana iconography where it's like labor will get you free and it doesn't mean you'll be happy, but you'll be like free. The relationship that I think black people have with labor in America is vastly different than that. Right, like the the idea is that it's sort of a Springsteen song is like, you know, the chips may be down, but everything's going to be okay. And that's sort of the privilege of yeah. being from the group of people where things tend to be okay. Which, and I think my favorite Springsteen songs are the songs in which, like, does anyone like Atlantic City? Yeah, sure. Atlantic City is the best Springsteen song because at the end, the dude is like, well, you know, stuff's, you know, I'm, stuff's feel pretty bad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Stuff is maybe worse than it was when the song started. On that note, it's time for a quick break here on Livewire. We've got Hanif Abdul-Rakib here. We've also got Elena Passarello. I'm Luke Burbank. Quick break, and then we'll be back with more Livewire. Stay with us. Livewire is supported, in part, by Fully. Listen, you know in your heart of hearts that sitting around at work all day, that ain't great for you. But guess what? It's not just your heart of hearts. There's actually a lot of science backing that up, which is why Livewire partners with Fully, the company that believes people weren't meant to be glued to a chair all day. Fully has curated the best collection. And I've been there, by the way. I've met them. I've seen the stuff, and I can testify. They've got the best collection of standing desks, active sitting chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage us to move. Uh, I've got the TikTok stool. In fact, I'm sitting on it right now. I don't know if you can hear me rocking back and forth on it. But uh, the folks at Fully sent me this thing, and it is just a dream. Uh, it's comfortable to sit on, but it keeps me engaged in the work that I'm doing, keeps the blood flowing, and, uh, and it's really improved my life as I uh, work to host your favorite public radio show and podcast, known as Livewire, in case you needed a reminder. Anyway, if you would like to be better at what you're doing and stay more engaged, 
Check out Fully. Get your body moving in your workspace by going to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire. Fully. Desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. We're at the Alberta Street Pub in Portland, Oregon this week. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. We have Hanif Abdurraqib here. His new book is They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. Um, you also have a thread running through the book about Marvin Gaye's performance of the national anthem at the NBA All-Star Game in 1983, Yeah, which uh, I was alive when it happened and an NBA fan, but I had to go back and re-familiarize myself with it. It's a kind of an amazing moment. Yeah, it's uh, pretty what, weird. What was like to you, what's the cultural significance of, of that performance? I was born that year, but I was also interested in this idea of Marvin Gaye at the end of his life, who was like committed to nothing but the idea of dying, trying to piece himself together long enough to rewrite his version of America, which I think a lot of Marvin Gaye's career was angling towards a rewriting of the American narrative that he was sold. You know, like that was happening in what's going on, but it was also happening like an I Want You. It was kind of also happening on like Let's Get It On in a way, because I think like rewriting these ideas about like the body is also rewriting an American narrative. And so it blows my mind that I think this last ditch thing that Marvin Gaye did was to take literal song of American, you know, symbolism and repurpose it in a way that was like soulful and rooted in black music. And I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, because he recorded his own backing track yeah. for the national anthem. Like he first of all, the the story goes that like nobody could find him that day. So they weren't sure if he was going to show up. He shows up, he walks out to center court and this very simple backing track starts playing. And the, the legend goes that somebody in the Lakers organization thought he was playing the background music for the wrong song. Yeah. And then he just lays into this like incredible version of the national anthem, which I mean, you go back and you and you read interviews with Isaiah Thomas and Magic Johnson and people who were there. It was and even Pat Riley. It's like amazing moment. And then he gets a standing ovation at the end of this. And I just feel like there's no way that would happen in 2018. No. If you tried something with the national anthem, a sports crowd would not give you a standing ovation. No, I've heard people are very passionate about the national anthem these days. Yeah. (laughs) Have you? Yeah. And yet somehow Marvin Gaye in 1983, when he walked out there uh, and decided to sort of try something, as you point out, in a very weird part of his career and towards the end of his life, I mean, it it just, it it resonated with people. Yeah. And he was dead like a year after that, you know, and I think that's wild. But also, we would never have this problem if our national anthem was just a Marvin Gaye song in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) Which one would you nominate? I I mean, a lot of them are too long. Uh... (laughs) Inner City Blues would be hilarious, because I, I would stand for that. We're talking to Hanif Abdurraqib here. Uh, there's another sports song reference in the book. The book, by the way, is They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us, uh, that I was so happy got included, and that was Prince's performance during the Super Bowl halftime show in Miami, Yeah, which was just... Like uh, uh, one of the most amazing things I've ever seen on television. It's raining. He's playing Purple Rain. Uh, can you sort of paraphrase the the quote that Prince apparently gave when oh, they yeah. told him, like, "Oh, it's raining out there." This is my favorite story. One of the favorite stories I found while researching for the book. Don Missioner, who was the producer, executive producer of the Super Bowl halftime show, it starts raining around like the second quarter, um, and he starts panicking. So he goes into Prince's dressing room and says, hey, Prince, uh, no big deal, but we're a little worried because 
it's starting to rain outside. And Prince, apparently, without looking up from tuning his guitar, says, can you make it rain harder? That feels like the most Prince thing yeah. you could ever say. And that, yeah. I wrote that. That's the piece I wrote in the book that was done the quickest. I wrote that piece in an hour after the news of Prince dying, um, because at the time I worked for MTV. And a fun thing about that piece is I wrote it before he was officially dead. There, if anyone remembers, yeah. there was the Friday where Prince's plane emergency landed. And my boss at the time was like, you know, I've been around music. I know this is not normal. I think Prince is going to die. And I was like, and she was kind of like, can you, I was at a party or something. And she was like, can you write something up just in case this happens over the weekend? So I ran home. I wrote that. And then like Sunday morning came and half of the folks at MTV were like, cool, we don't need this piece. But she and I were both like, we're going to need this piece like soon. And then he died on Monday. Uh, we have Hanif Abdur-Rakib here. Uh, the book is They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. How did you decide? I mean, obviously, your interest in music is so wide-ranging, and it's on, it's uh, evidenced in this book. Like, it's everything from My Chemical Romance to Schoolboy Q to, like, everything in between. And you obviously go to a lot of shows. How did you decide, like, what shows you were going to write about, what pieces of music were interesting to you? How did you decide what was going to be in the book? I think, again, it was me trying to figure out the things I was most curious about, emotionally curious. Some of the stuff had been previously published, and so once we hammered down the like 12 or so essays that had been previously published that had to go in the book, it was so freeing to me to be like, I can write anything I want, not tied to like a news peg or not tied to like... And so I, at the time of writing this book, was like in a, in a pretty rough emotional place, and so a lot of the writing of this book were kind of writing exercises for me trying to get to the center of something that might make me feel not better, but like I could better articulate my emotional upheaval, right? And so I'm not necessarily, I was not writing to like feel good. I was writing to better articulate my feeling bad. Um, And I was trying to figure out musicians or songs or angles that most afforded me the amount of doors and windows I needed to, to figure that out. So there's some obvious stuff like Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, but there's some less obvious stuff, I think, like The weekend. you know? Was it cathartic? I don't know yet. I, I think it's weird. Um, I mean, if I can just be frank, like, because the book has done pretty well in, in a way that, like, I don't think anyone expected it to. I remember hitting my publisher up on the phone and being like, you know, just tell me the news, you know, like, 600 is great for me, you know? I just wanted to write a book that people liked. And then he was like, no, it's, it's like 6,000 already. <laughs> and so, like, I think it's cathartic now, right, that I can be like, I created this thing that I like suffered greatly for and it, people seem to like it. But it is also really challenging to have something that so many people love inextricably linked to a really awful time period, yeah. right? And I will say this. I came out of this book knowing that I would no longer, I would never again suffer to create. I just don't want to do that anymore. Um, I don't have a use for that. I think that I... I'm learning how to create without that. You know, this and my first poetry book were really hard to write. I mean, this was significantly harder. I, like, wrote this book in, like, a month secluded in, like, a Provincetown Airbnb in the winter. You know, like, Whoa. it was awful. Um, <laughs> but that's where I had, to, I had to, I felt like I had to do this in order to write what I wanted to write. Like, I had to take myself to that place. But I am, since coming out of that place, I have begun to reconsider what it is to suffer for your art mm-hmm. or if it's even necessary. And for me, I don't think I will allow it to be necessary anymore. Well, if you if you had to suffer for one, and if you're not doing it anymore, I'm glad that <laughs> you, you gave this one to all of us. The book is They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. Hanif Abdurraqib is the guest here on Livewire. 
All right, Hanif, uh, here on Livewire, we like to really try to get to know our guests on a, on a kind of deep and personal level. And, and so uh, in that interest, uh, we've put together this actual physical jar, which is sitting on the table just to the side of you. Uh, it has five questions in it. These are the five essential questions of our age. Oh, no. And we would like you to select one of them and answer it truthfully. We call this exercise the Jar of Truth. Here's how it's going to work. Uh, Hanif, you grab a question, and then Elena Passarello is going to read the question. Uh, and yeah, then so don't you look are, at it. Yeah, so you, then you're going to answer it uh, as don't truthfully as possible. Okay. So Hanif has selected the question. Uh-huh. Elena is going to read it now. Okay, this is one of the five essential questions of our time. Hanif, is it totally acceptable... Or is it unbearably pretentious to name pets after famous literary characters? <laughs> I had a, um, when I was, this is bad. Um, <laughs> Every I, good story starts with, this, this is, is bad. bad. <laughs> because when I was in my like early 20s, me and my roommate Gabe had a cat named Hemingway. Uh, <laughs> and it was like my cat, realistically, because like, you know, uh, it was back when I had a whole Hemingway thing, which I don't really have anymore because. <laughs> I'm an adult now. Right. Uh, <laughs> and I'd like walk around with him like, this is my cat Hemingway. Did Hemingway meow in really short bursts? <laughs> like, tur- <laughs> was, like, that really- was a joke for all the MFAs <laughs> yeah. in the listening audience. What, 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 yeah. what? Really short, belabored bursts. Yeah. Uh, now I would like walk around like people would come to parties and I'd be like, oh yeah, Hemingway's here if you want to pet him. Uh, <laughs> hey ladies. No. So yes, it's bad. Don't name your pets after it. So the official answer is no, no. it's not okay. Yes. Hanif Abdul-Rakib, everybody. The book is They Can't Kill Us So They Kill Us. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder, but with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. All right, we are talking about breakthroughs this week on Livewire, and it turns out that there is a scientist right here in our own backyard at OHSU who's been doing some breakthrough research that we just had to find out more about. She is this week's new fascinating friend. Let's meet her now. Please welcome Dr. Mary Zelinsky to Livewire. Dr. Zelensky, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so uh, you and uh, your OHSU compatriots are, are getting somewhat close to what medical breakthrough? We are developing a new male contraceptive. <laughs> so, like the pill, but for dudes. Correct. Um, so, if I read some of the some of the background material correctly. Your process in primates essentially freezes sperm, sort of stops these sperm in their tracks. Are they put to sleep? Are they killed off? Like what's actually happening to these sperm that are just like not moving anymore? Okay, so um, this compound works in a part of your reproductive tract called the epididymis. Did you know you had one of those? (laughs) this is actually news to me okay (laughs) so sperm have to hang out here for a couple of weeks to gain their ability to uh, fertilize and also to move 
So um, there's a special protein that's um, made here that is absolutely essential for the sperm to move in the drug that was developed by my colleague blocks the action of this protein. So when the sperm are released, they're not moving. And then those sperm, they eventually just sort of wither? Is yeah. That so um, you can replenish your supply of sperm at about every 24 to 36 hours. We found that the um, drug that we administered can stay in the system for about 72 hours and keep the sperm from moving. And then everything's reversible about 18 days later. Wow. Is it like a take it every morning kind of a pill? Or is well, it like we, a- we still have to work on that. So the way we first administered it into our um, non-human primates was intravenously because uh, we have to make a form of this drug that's bioavailable that can be taken orally. We don't have that yet. That's the next step. So when you say primates, is this mm-hmm. monkeys? Is that who's, yes. who's having this uh, yes. sort of sperm deadening procedure? Correct. Do they seem bummed? Do they know what's going on? <laughs> They don't seem bummed at all. No, they're they're pretty uh, wonderful gentlemen to work with, and uh, we train them for this process using positive reinforcement. And they really love food treats, and each of them has their own little thing that they they like the best. And um, they're very cooperative, and we love working with them. What so what, like a Snickers bar? Like what are the what oh, is the, man. What is the red... so the boring dudes like just peanuts and Fruit Loops. What are the fun dudes like? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the gourmet, our gourmet male will only do things for dried mango from the, wow. you know, big bin at Winco. <laughs> do they have names? Does one name yes. one subject? Oh, all of our people that work with the monkeys always name them because they each have different personalities just like we do. So our four guys were named Apollo, Nico, Rolo, and Shiloh. Yeah, the low boys, it sounds yeah. like. The low so, boys. Um, <laughs> they're really low because you've been knocking out all their sperm. <laughs> so I, if I understand right, uh, Dr. Zelinsky, the part of the process that you have yet to test is seeing if the uh, reproductive abilities of these primates come back, right? So you know that you can kind of like stop the sperm in its tracks. But the question will be if Lolo and Rolo and... <laughs> J-Lo. And J-Lo. <laughs> if, they are, if these primates are, are able to then like uh, actually procreate after this, uh, after this drug has been administered, that will, that will be a huge step in this process, right? Right. Well, we have to go back a step and first make sure that females don't get pregnant. Okay, so step one is you, you manage to, to arrest the sperm's movement. Mm-hmm. Step two is to uh, have them you know, have a fun, sexy time. Right. And then see if, if, if it impregnates the females. And if it doesn't, that means step two is a success. Mm-hmm. And then step three and the ultimate success will be they are able to impregnate females right. after the process right. has been... to have it be reversible. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How, how long do you think we really are realistically from male contraception that is effective, whether it's a, a pill or some kind of a other thing that we, we guys can take? Mm-hmm. It's a million-dollar question. There's a lot that goes into developing new drugs, and the FDA hasn't really... Um, had to approve a male contraceptive yet so that people in the field are the first to have to run that gauntlet so that's a (laughs) challenge but there are some clinical trials going on with compounds that are different than ours that are hormonal and appear to be effective as well so there might be a couple of different options available and I'm going to guess maybe five years at the earliest Uh, there's a lot of hoops you jump through to get something on the market 
is that going to be a really a tectonic shift kind of societally, right? Absolutely, and I think it's about darn time. <laughs> is there any danger of, of us uh, becoming too effective at birth control? And I think this year we set another record low for birth rate in this country. Um, any danger that we're going to get so good at, at not getting pregnant that there you know, won't be enough people around? I don't think so, because we can't really control people's behavior. But I think that um, basically we just need to be aware, because half of all of pregnancies now in the United States are unintended, are accidents. And it's about um, three million pregnancies. And about a million of those end up as abortions. So I think uh, having more options for contraception, both for men and women, will help avoid this big batch of unintended pregnancies. Dr. Mary Zielinski, everybody, right here on Livewire. This is Livewire Radio. Our next guest is a stand-up comic who's also in high demand as a writer. She wrote on the first two seasons of the HBO show Crashing. And she's one of the comics featured in the Netflix series The Stand-Ups, which is available right now on Netflix. Please welcome the amazing Beth Stelling to Livewire. Hey, everybody. Uh... I have my mom had a breakthrough, a musical breakthrough. Uh, she thought uh, the DMX song was, y'all gonna make me lose my mind, pumpkin head, pumpkin head. Play, played it for her third grade class. She was a music teacher. I, I have to resort to my mom material whenever I do public radio. I feel like mom material is safe because my mom's a virgin. So it's good. <laughs> You get to talk about her. My mom brought um, her mother, also known as my grandmother, uh, to a show of mine a couple months ago in Dayton, my hometown of Ohio. Uh, my grandma is very supportive. She's 98. She, uh, when I did Jimmy Kimmel a couple years ago, my grandma wanted to watch me on Jimmy Kimmel. So uh, night before I was on, she did a little test run in her living room. Uh, she stayed up. She turned on the TV, went to the right channel, watched Jimmy Kimmel. So then the next night that I would be on, she would be prepared to watch. So then the next night she got up, turned on the TV, watched uh, all of Jimmy Fallon and thought <laughs> <laughs> that they'd just run out of time for me, um, <laughs> which is, yeah, it's sad. There's, there's enough late night Jimmys that you can mix that up. You know what I mean? Because if there was a late night woman host, she would have gone to the right channel, but we got Jimmys. Um, yeah, so my mom and I, uh, we go way back, and a lot of stories about my mom. My mom, uh, she had to get a hysterectomy, uh, which is a huge bummer, because, you know, my childhood home is gone. You know, like, I'll never go back. And it's a, you know, super serious thing to go through, but she, you know, being in Ohio, loves to come visit me and relax in L.A. So after she recovered, she came and visited me in L.A. And I took her to a show. She's very supportive. The show I had was at a wine bar because a lot of the comics in L.A. are pretty starving for attention. And my mom and I, we show up to the wine bar for the show, and the audience doesn't. Uh, so 
the show's canceled. And my mom's a sweet woman, so she looks around at all the sad comics and she goes, well, guys, <laughs> snow day, huh? <laughs> Which is adorable if you're a teacher like my mom is, but if you're a comic, you think my mom has cocaine. You know, so I'm just like, we gotta get you out of here, you know. But closest I've come to doing cocaine is just like trying to pet a guinea pig in a cage. Have you ever done that? <laughs> oh my God, they're in there. They're running around. They're kicking up chips. It's like, <laughs> what a rush, you know. <laughs> Try to get your hand in and out of there, you know. And we had guinea pigs growing up and we kept them in our garage. And in the hot Ohio summers, they definitely died in there. And... <laughs> My middle sister, Hannah, reminded me we'd named one of them Brownie, which in retrospect is extra sad. She was out there straight bacon at 375. <laughs> and my mom felt awful, so she let us give him a proper burial in the backyard. And me and my two older sisters, we went out in the backyard, found the easiest place to bury him. We put him right in the sandbox, just <laughs> And then a neighborhood dog came along and snarfed up their carcasses. It was a tragedy all around, and I really feel like it could have been avoided if we just had a dad, you know? I don't know what dads do, but I assume it's regulate the garage temp, you know? They're always in there. Uh, ironically, from my mother, for Christmas this year, majority of my Christmas gifts were just self-help books, which... Leads me to believe she doesn't think things are going so well for me. It was like self-help book and like an Oprah journal and a book on forgiveness. I was like, this is the laziest intervention of all time, you know? And um, I, I have two older sisters, like I said, and they have families and they always send out Christmas cards, which helped me because I use those like flashcards for their kids' names. There's so many nieces and nephews I never really do. I just have to wait for them to sort of huddle in a group and then I just yell out a name. I'm like, Mason, and you know, wait for one to turn. And then I'm like, get over here, let's connect. Um, you have to be careful with kids because uh, they're diseased. And I, some people don't like it when I say that, but I speak from experience. I, I was a diseased child myself. I craved disease even like my mom's best friend. She had a daughter, and when I went over one morning, she had chicken pox, and I just, I rubbed right up against her, and it worked, I got the chicken pox. And then my next thing I tackled was lice. I went ahead and got lice. I was the youngest of the three girls, and it was preschool, and my mom, um, she was going to drop me off at preschool, and there had been an outbreak, and so she pulled me aside before I went in the classroom, and she was like, Beth, do not try on any hats. And I was like, no problem. And then I got into that preschool and I beelined it for the dress-up station. And I was like, I am a chef. I have a bonnet on. This is a cowboy hat. I have lice. She was right, you know. I got lice and we thought that was bad. And then my middle sister Hannah got scabies. Uh, is anybody hungry? So my sister Hannah got scabies and then we all got scabies. Because when you get a disease from the Middle Ages, it's trying to take out a group, you know. And we survived. Thank you. Take a seat. We've had it wiped down for scabies. Thank you. Uh, your uh, handle on Twitter and also uh, the name of uh, one of your comedy specials was Sweet Beth. But right. that's not just a clever nickname. 
Uh, I was I watching you on Modern Comedian, which yeah. I just would mention is a, a great documentary series about comedians and people in the comedy industry. <laughs> um, you talked about sort of your love of sugar and the dental problems that it created for you. Sure, How are yeah, your yeah. teeth right now? First visit to the dentist, I, I had six cavities. Yeah. Uh, but also the dentist, they told me that because I was the youngest, I was born with the least enamel. I don't know if he told me that to make me feel better. or, But yeah, I mean, I brush and I floss now but back then you know i just would eat candy and then just let her sit is this true the more babies a woman has the no they get worse Dr. and worse Patton, enamel? i think told me that or maybe <laughs> i think so so you're operating under the theory that the sort of further into the lineage you get the less enamel there is for the children yeah you're, yeah your mom runs out <laughs> How many crowns do you have? I have like probably four crowns. I'm a queen. <laughs> uh, we're talking to Beth Stelling here on Livewire. You were a writer on the show Crashing. It's a show about somebody trying to make it in stand-up comedy in New York. Yeah. Uh, how much of that uh, is sort of uh, squared with your experience trying to make it in stand-up comedy? Um, wow. I mean, I was an overnight success, so none of it really. <laughs> yeah. A lot of it is pulled from all of our experiences. You know, like we basically sit in the room and tell horror stories uh, of our time on the road or like when we first started. But because I didn't start in New York, I started in Chicago. I mean, technically I started in Ohio, um, but Chicago is where I really gave it the full on try. As far as trying to make it in stand-up comedy, then becoming an actual touring road comic, what's the kind of least great part about being a, a touring road comic? At I least in your the, experience. When you first start, you're not doing the best gigs with the best people. Meaning, and I don't mean other comics. I mean, you know, uh, showing up to a club and like having the owner say like, text me when you get here. And I'm like, okay, I'm here. And then they have you meet you at the back door. And then they open the back door. Instead of letting you in the back door, they just step outside and shut it behind them. And they're like, hey. And you're like, hi. <laughs> and they're like, want a hug? And then I'm like, no, I don't. Let's go inside. You know what I mean? And we're just like in the, this horrible like bar in Phoenix and I don't know where I am. And I have to like, I think I just put my hand right here and then I went like this and hugged him with this one. You know what I mean? So for the radio audience, you sort of put up a little hand armor. Yeah, a little hand armor. To try to create a little bit of my, distance. Yeah. And I think it's like moments like that where you're like, there's no HR. There's no like, uh-oh, I'm alone here in this city. I was never like scared. He was just probably upset with me he didn't end up paying me he left the money with uh, the bartender to pay me i don't think really what who... keeps you going through that i mean because there's a lot of times where you prior like what am i doing here this is this is weird and not fun like why do you keep going with it because i guess the highs are high enough where you want to get that again you know then it's just trying to get better and so you take what you can i mean you say yes to things for so long i mean i i've I've had to start being like, you can say no, you know, as recently as like last year, I did a sh said yes to a show and I showed up and it was just a man's living room for him and his four friends <laughs> in LA. What? And I was just like, how could I be here right now? Did you do comedy? Yes. <laughs> how did it go? Honestly, it was pretty fun and I did work out some new things, but it was strange. Yeah. To say the least. What were you led to believe this gig was? They had a poster. I thought it was legit, you know, <laughs> a poster. It was a home and there were other comics that I knew that were there. So those were like kind of my, my anchors. You played a sold out show here in Portland last night. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, what's that feel like to you now when you're about to go on stage at the Star Theater and it's sold out and everybody's there to see Beth Stelling? Like that's right. sort of like the that's the brass ring, right? What, sure. Like yeah. Your performance here. Yeah. Even the moments of like you know I, I still I'll open for people on the road sometimes still like I open for Sarah Silverman or Mike Birbiglia and like you get to the theater and there's that moment where you're doing the sound check and you see the mic sitting there and I'll, I'll be there with Sarah and like she'll walk up to the mic and you can see this empty theater and for me like for years is when I was opening for people in France it's like oh I'm just I'm here I'm the support and same for writing for a tv show it's like it's my job I make you look good so I'm actually transitioning now into trying to be like that's you you're the person who's supposed to do that now it's like I'm used to being little sister and I have to be I have to step up and sort of lead. You have myself. to have all the teeth enamel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Beth Stelling, everybody. Right here on Livewire. This is Livewire Radio. We will be right back. Hey, it's Luke. Special thanks this episode to Monica Mary Ellenboss of Green Cove Springs, Florida, and Aaron Woolley of Beaverton, Oregon. Monica and Aaron are part of the Livewire member community, and they generously support us with a donation each month. We are very, very thankful for that support. It's not hyperbole to say, uh, it's only with that support from our members that we are able to actually keep this show going week in and week out. So a big thanks to Monica and Aaron for keeping Livewire going. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Our musical guest this hour is a Portland local who's been called the love child of John Prine and Mitch Hedberg. He's toured with Jack Johnson and received fan mail from the one and only Chuck Norris. As if that weren't enough, he's also got a live album coming out later this year. Please welcome John Craigie back to Livewire. Hi, John. Welcome to Livewire. How's it going? Good, man. Um, how, how does one get a piece of fan mail from Chuck Norris? <laughs> well, uh, like most things in the folk singer world, you got to write a song about them. <laughs> And, uh, you wrote a Chuck Norris song and he heard did. about it? He did, yeah. So what happened was I was playing in this town called Columbia, Missouri one night. And I did the show and there was at the after party, uh, the kids were being very nice to me, very flattering. And they were like, you must have songs about everything. And normally I'd be very shy and, and you know humble about it, but I'd had about a beer and a half, which for me is a lot. you know. So I was like, you don't even know. I got a little cocky, and I started making up things. I said, I got a song about Judge Judy. I got a song about Chuck Norris. And then everything got real quiet. And they looked at me, and they said, uh, we like Chuck Norris here. We'd love to hear that song. But it, <laughs> it did not exist. So six months later, I, was, uh, I sent out my email to the town saying I'm coming back. I started getting all these requests in the email. Hey, this is Sam from Columbia, Missouri. Love to hear a Chuck Norris song. <laughs> I was like, man, I got to write this song. <laughs> so I wrote a really dumb song uh, just for that night, but the, because of the brilliance of YouTube, it got on YouTube. It started getting popular, so I had to sing it. And uh, someone who worked for Chuck Norris filmed it one night. I was playing uh, in uh, Reno, I think. Um, they showed it to Chuck. <laughs> At the time, I was just on the living on the road, so I was using my sister's house as uh, my gift for my mail. My sister Monica, she's very sweet. And uh, shy, and she calls me one day. She's like, 
uh, Johnny, there's a letter here from Chuck Norris. Should I open it? <laughs> and I said, yes, please. And I heard the sound of, you know, an envelope being opened, the sound of a glossy photo being pulled out of an envelope. <laughs> and I heard Monica go, oh, God. <laughs> I said, what is it? Tell it to me. She says, well, it's a picture of Chuck. He's uh, holding two uh, guns. <laughs> He's wearing a lot of denim. He's uh, glistening with sweat or oil. I'm not sure what it is. I said, yeah, yeah, what does it say? And it says, uh, she said, it says, Dear John Craigie, thank you for the song. I enjoyed listening to it. Signed, Chuck Norris. And I have that photo framed in my room right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you better. <laughs> uh, do you have anything non-Chuck Norris related you'd yes, like to share yeah, with us? I'd love to sing you guys uh, this song I wrote about a thing called Burning Man. You guys know Burning Man here in Portland, yeah. I've been going for years now, and every year I go, they tell me that it, it's getting less cool each year. And I always go, is it because I'm coming? I, I could stop you. But they say, no, John, you're fine. It's because everyone's parents and grandparents are coming now. But I don't mind because that's my key demographic at Burning Man. Because there's all these cool DJs there. You know, you got your Skrillex and your Diplo and then your John Craigie. And they always put me in the farthest, nerdiest little tent. They're like, oh, John, we got you in this sweet 6.30 p.m. slot uh, over in the library slash tea house slash post office tent. <laughs> It's going to be off the hook. But then I'm setting up. I'm like, nobody's coming to this thing, you know. But then some grandma peeks in and she's like, now this is what I'm looking for. <laughs> John, do you have any Cat Stevens? I'm like, yeah, I got all the Cat Stevens, grandma. Hang out. We'll just do it. <laughs> it took me a while to go to Burning Man because uh, I don't know if maybe like you guys, I got people were trying to scare me away from Burning Man. They would say stuff like, John, I don't know if you can handle Burning Man. It's a lot of hippies, naked dancing in the desert, hugging each other, drum circles. Can you handle that? But at that time, I was living in Santa Cruz, California. I was like, that sounds like our farmer's market. We have one a week. Yes. <laughs> I can handle <laughs> some days of that. So I go, and I wrote this song for the couples out there. It's hard. Bernie Man's tough on the couples. One night I was walking through the desert. I heard this guy say to his girl, he was like, honey, let's talk this over when we're sober and not at Burning Man. I was like, whoa. That is the wisest thing I've heard <laughs> all week. So this song is called Let's Talk This Over When We're Sober and Not a Burning Man. This is John Craigie on Livewire. Well, I know you want to have a real serious chat right here, right now. Inside of our tent, oh, baby. Yeah, don't you know that I understand? Yeah, but this really ain't the best time and place. Let's use one of the other 358 days. Let's talk this over when we're sober and we're not at Burning Man. That's my, that's my sing-along chorus. I know you want to complain about your roommate again Because she never ever does any of her dishes And how all she needs to do is leave that no good man Oh, but I just want to talk about planets and stuff And how much techno subs Let's talk this over Help me out When we're sober like that. I know 
that you think that I smoke too much pot I know you think my lazy ass friends should all get jobs trust me I know when I told you your grandpa looks kind of like a pug you got real man oh yeah but you have got to admit that he kind of sort of does but never mind baby it's not the point because we talk this over when we're sober yeah. and we're not at talk about the bills we have don't want to talk about your issues with your mom and your dad i don't want to talk about how under no circumstances should i ever ever wear jean shorts well yeah but maybe it's okay if i cut them off at the ends you know i don't really want to have this conversation come on baby let's go climb on some crazy ass art oh 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 and there is so much that we could process, girl, when we get back to that old default world. But for now, honey, let's enjoy this party while we can. Oh, now we could talk about some serious stuff. But I hear there's a wooden man that they're about to blow up. Let's talk this over when we're sober. And we're not at Burning Man Oh yeah, you know We could redefine our relationship Or we could make love On top of that pirate ship Let's talk this over When we're sober And we're not at Burning Man Let's talk this over When we're sober And we're not at Burning so beautiful thank you John Craigie right here on Livewire that is going to do it for our show this week thank you so much to our guests Hanif Abdurraqib Beth Stelling Dr. Mary Zelinsky and of course John Craigie Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines and Fully Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development and marketing director. And Tim Harkins is our operations director. Our editor is Melanie Sevchenko. And Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom and Ethan Fox Tucker. And Elena Passarello, she's our super talented announcer. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. And thanks so much, as always, to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Cultural Trust and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was co-created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank member Jen Maxwell of Portland, Oregon for her support. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. PRI Public Radio International.